with you. If you would, would you join me in uh, Hebrews chapter 10? That's where we're going to be this morning. And uh, as you're turning there, it's interesting, uh, this last, on Friday evening, I was walking back through the service order for this morning and was just kind of going back through last week's service. Um, and it was, a, it was a, a, a real encouraging thing for me that I found Scott Horrell charging you guys uh, to read the book of Hebrews. And uh, he was going through uh, and he read uh, verses 1 through 18. Uh, and I had already turned in my text, written uh, much of my sermon at that point, which is Hebrews t- uh, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Uh, and, I, and I say that was encouraging to me because when we see God orchestrating things, it should give us a sense that he is among us, uh, that he is wanting to speak to us and wanting to encourage us. And I was encouraged uh, as the, the pastor preacher that was going to come for this Sunday, I uh, was encouraged for Scott's sake that Scott was right in line with the Lord and was encouraged for your sake. And so with that being said, I, I hope that you look forward to hearing God's word and not just hearing it, but being a doer of it. With that said, let's have a word of prayer before we read our text together. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for these wonderful moments that you have appointed. And we pray, Lord, that by your grace and by your mercy, in this hour, you would speak to us, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would be high and lifted up. We pray, Lord, for strength. We pray, Father, that you would encourage us We pray, Lord, that you would embolden us. We pray, Lord, that you would stir our affection and love for you and for one another. Father, would you come this hour and and, and strengthen our faith? Would you come this hour and assure yet again our hope? Would you come, Lord, and stir up our love? We bow our hearts before you, Lord, and we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would descend upon us this hour. That you would come upon us mightily, Lord, in a way that our minds would be fed with your truth, in a way that our imagination would be purged with your beauty, in a way that our love would be stirred with your affection for us, in a way that would bend our will to your will, And may it be transformative in our life, Lord. Would you transform us from one degree to the next in this very hour, we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. If you have the ability to stand, would you stand with me as we read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Hear now God's word. Therefore, brothers, Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. 
for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever by his grace and mercy this morning. May it be preached for you. Please be seated. Why choose a text like this? As many of you know, the book of Hebrews is focused on the idea of the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's, if we put a tagline over Hebrews, we would say Jesus is better. Uh, Jesus is better in his revelation. We see that in Hebrews 1 and 2. Uh, Jesus is better in his, as a resting place. We see that in Hebrews 3 and 4. Jesus is a better high priest and mediator. We see this in Hebrews chapter 5 through chapter 8. And Jesus is a better sacrifice. We see this uh, in, in Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. And as many of you know, uh, this is a time of year when many of us make commitments we write resolutions. Uh, we order and try to reorder our lives around our priorities, uh, around our purpose, around our hopes and our dreams. And if you're anything like me, most of us, with the goals that we write in this time of year, will can those goals by February 1. <laughs> right? Those goals are kind of out the window uh, by February 1. But if we took how flimsy our commitment can often be personally and we extended it into the realm of the spiritual realm and spiritual growth, it gets even more concerning. Did you know that Barna sent a, uh, a survey out and they got it back in the middle of the pandemic and this was the result of the survey that over 50% of congregants were only attending church one out of every four opportunities in a month. Now, let me just stop here and just say this. Mamas that are here this morning, and you're like, I don't even know how I got here. I fought with my kids all the way here. We are so proud of you. Thank you for just being here. But it's concerning when we don't show up. And I'm not talking about those that are providentially hindered that are watching online right now. We love you. We're thinking about you. But it's concerning when we don't show up because we see that our theology and our doctrine begins to drift and slide. Ligonier Ministries just put out a state of theology, and let me tell you, it's not good, folks. Uh, things that are, that are clear biblical uh, convictions for the local church is Jesus the only way. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there is half of orthodoxy is saying, I'm not sure if that's a true statement or not anymore. There may be another way. And so when we see attendance drifting in the local church uh, and, and the body being around the word of God, getting around the word of God, and we see the doctrine beginning to drift, uh, and then we see a generation being raised up that's talking about leaving the faith. Uh, they want to pass on to the next generation a deconstruction idea of what it means to have faith in a God that is out there. 
It is a concerning time. And the question on the table, and this doesn't even, by the way, take into consideration our own struggles and temptations. It doesn't take into consideration our own downfall with the economy. It doesn't take into consideration those of us here today that are wrestling with a disease in our body. So the question on the table is, how, with all of that, the pressures of the culture, with my own personal temptations, with my own discouragement, how does one remain? How does one remain vibrant in their faith? How does one remain sure of their hope? How does one remain consistent in their love? What merciful word would God have for us this morning? Well, we look at Hebrews chapter 10, and this sermon is broken up into two big categories, full access and full living. God's merciful word to us and God's direction for us to remain. Let's look at it together. Hebrews 10, full access, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Uh, A there on your outline is uh, what Christ has done. And B there is what Christ is doing. The full access comes from what Christ has done. And if you look there, he says, we have confidence. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that when the people of Israel came to the mountain of Sinai, uh, they were told to prepare themselves before they came to that mountain. I've taught on this before several, several years ago. Uh, And when they were told to come to that mountain, they were told, don't touch the mountain. The mediator, Moses, will come up on the mountain and he will hear from God and then he will bring God's word back down to you. Uh, God mercifully in the Old Testament set up a sacrificial system so that the people of Israel could know that God was dwelling in their midst. But there had to be bloodshed for the people to dwell with God. But there's a better shedding of blood here through Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus, what has he done? He made a once and for all sacrifice for our sins. We can see this in early on in Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verses 12. But when Christ had offered for all time, catch it, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Look at Jesus' posture and know how it's different from other priests in that day when they would dwell in the temple and they would make sacrifice on behalf of God's people. They would stand in attention. But Jesus sits down because he's completed the work. Four things that Jesus' blood does for you that you cannot do for yourself. A, it pays the penalty for your sin. We know this is Romans 6.23, but B, we know also that Jesus' blood, what it does for us that we cannot do for ourselves is it's our propitiation. It turns away God's wrath and satisfies it. Here's what that means for you, dear church. If you are in Christ this morning, God is not angry with you. No matter how you're coming in, no matter how filthy you feel, no matter what you did last night, 
if you are in Christ, God's wrath has been satisfied. It's not just the penalty, and it's not just the propitiation that he paid for you, but it's also he reconciled us to himself. We were separated. This is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, the Lord Jesus, when he shed his blood, he brought us back into relationship with the Father. You could not bring yourself back into relationship with the Father. Muhammad could not bring you back into relationship with the Father. No religious activity that you or I would partake in could bring us back into that reconciled relationship with the Father. Only the blood of Jesus Christ could do that. And only the blood of Jesus Christ could purchase you, dear friends, from the slave block. Romans chapter six says you are a slave to sin or you are a slave to righteousness. Because Christ shed his blood, he put you and made you righteous. He transferred you from the dominion of, of, of darkness into light, according to Colossians chapter 1. You could not do that for yourself. You needed the blood of Christ. It's what Christ has done, church. But it's not just what Christ has done that has given us full access. It's what Christ is doing. What has he done? Or, what is he, or, uh, or also, what has he done here? Uh, I got ahead of myself here. Look at verse 20 with me. Preachers do that sometimes. They get really excited. I'm really excited. Verse 20, what also has he done? He made a once and for all sacrifice, but he's also opened to us the new and living way. Verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. You know this, dear church, but let me remind it, mind you and speak this over you again today. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, in Genesis 3.24, the Bible says that God sent them out of the garden and put a cherubim in front of entry back into the garden to the tree of life. And he had a flaming sword. And Adam and Eve, when they had sinned, they began to fight with one another. Uh, and when they go out of the garden, their children begin to make war Cain and Abel with one another. Uh, God, when he makes uh, the tabernacle, he gives uh, Moses specific instructions uh, that there's going to be a holy place in the tabernacle and then there's going to be the holies of holies in the tabernacle. And there'll be a curtain that will be between the holy place and the holies of holies. And on that curtain, embroidered, will be that cherubim with the flaming sword. It's to tell the high priest who is the one mediator in all of Israel who can go behind that curtain one time a year on Yom Kippur that when you come back here, you must come by the way that God said come or you will be struck down by the glory and holiness of God. The Lord Jesus, when he goes to the cross and he offers up his body and his flesh has been ripped open and he's hanging on the cross and he says, it is finished. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, the Bible says that that curtain was ripped from top to bottom. And Jesus ascends after he resurrects. He ascends into the heavens and he goes back into the holy place. And the Bible says his posture is not standing. He's set down. 
leading me and you to have full access to God. Full access to God. What has Christ done? He made a once and for all sacrifice and he opened up the new and living way. It is a new and living way for us. Access granted. But what is Christ doing? Look with me there at verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, the Lord Jesus has gone there and he represents you as that high priest. Uh, What a priest would do, what a high priest would do in the Old Testament is they would put on the garments uh, that God had given them and those garments would have uh, the tribes of Israel upon the garments. It was as if the priest was carrying the people by name in with him into that holy place. The Lord Jesus has your name written in the book of life and he carries you, beloved, into that holy place with him where he has promised that he is preparing a place for you. Full access. There he represents you, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This God-man who knows the weakness of the flesh, who learned obedience by crying and praying and all of the means that you and I have learned to obey God. And he says to you, follow me and I will get you home. There he represents you, but he also intercedes on your behalf with his blood. If the Lord Jesus' blood is sufficient, then you are completely accepted at the throne of God. What has Christ done? Made a once and for all sacrifice, opened the new and living way. And he's also, what is Christ doing? He represents you and he is interceding for you, even right now. There is full access that has been granted to you, dear church. And this calls us into full living. This calls us into full living. And and there's three exhortations found in our passage. It's around the idea of let us. Look right here uh, at what he says, the first one here in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What is that talking about? Let us live a life of worship marked by faith. Let us live a life of worship marked by faith. And what does faith look like? What does a life of worship look like? And this is, by the way, this is a, uh, it is a picture of, of Hebrews chapter 4 where, the, where it says of the Lord Jesus that he ascends into the heavens. And it says that we can now approach the throne of grace in prayer. And so pointedly, this is prayer. To draw near is to pray and to cry out to God. But uh, more broadly speaking, we know in the context of Hebrews chapter 10, it's also worship. They would bring their sacrifice as an act of worship. And so this is a, a life of worship that is marked by faith. And there are guidelines for how we worship, brothers and sisters. And the first one is this, a true 
and sincere heart. A true and sincere heart is one that relates to God adoringly with right affections and priorities. Now it's easy, I know, because we've done it time and time again in my house. Uh, My wife and my three little girls on our way to church to get into a fight, to be fatigued, to, to come into church and uh, to immediately just kind of plop down and just, just somebody give me something. And, and that's not wrong per se. The church definitely feeds us and encourages us. Uh, we'll talk more about that in just a couple minutes. But there is a point in the service where you should be thinking about what am I actually singing? And, and what is the person up here praying? Am I praying with them? And is my heart really bent towards God? You see, before you had your heart regenerated, your disposition of religious activity was nothing more than for self. But when God transforms your heart, now your disposition is to know God, to enjoy God, to see the beauty and majesty of Christ, to see the security found in the Lord Jesus, to see the significance of being part of his kingdom. And when we see that, we want to worship. And by the way, worship is not first an activity, it's an identity. God made you a worshiper. So the question is, what or who are you worshiping this morning? When we hear what the Lord Jesus has done and what the Lord Jesus is doing, it should stir us to have a sincere response, to have a life of worship, to be committed to worship personally, but not privately only. We have personal worship that leads us into corporate worship with one another. And so with a true and sincere heart, we relate to God adoringly with right affections and priorities. And this leads us to thinking more about the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would have full assurance of faith. This is an unwavering trust in him and his promises. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about the promises of God. He says, dear Christian." Do not treat the promises of God like they are curiosities in a museum, but deploy them and claim them that you may throw yourself upon Christ and walk with him. It's God's promise, or his promises to you, curiosities that you may observe when you're at church but mean nothing through you at the week. I want to be tender when I say this because I understand that some of us may be struggling in our faith and some of us may have an overactive conscience and I want you to know that if you have an overactive conscience that the Lord would have you yet again press in to the objective truth that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose on the third day And even if you don't feel it, believe it. You know, it was, uh, I was at this point in time in my life, uh, not a believer. And I was at Arkansas State 
but I was doing reli- some religious things, right? I had two religious Bible studies that I attended with campus outreach. Uh, and then I had two nights a week that I would go out on the town. And I thought life was pretty balanced. And I remember one night I was walking to a fraternity party and I got halfway down this hill and I had seen this guy uh, who kind of locked eyes with me, but you could tell he didn't really want to see me, but I saw him. And he kind of stumbles over to me and he's very intoxicated. And he goes down this laundry list of reasons why he's been drinking. And I, I kind of cut him off midstream and I say, man, don't worry about it. I'm about to go get drunk too. Let's just go together. And he makes this comment to me. He says, Brett, you are really cool. I thought you were like Corey, the campus director there with Campus Outreach, and some of the other guys that called them himself, themselves disciples in that ministry. I thought you were like them. And at that moment, God used that statement to draw a line in the sand. I was calling myself a Christian, and they were calling themselves a Christian, and our lives looked radically different in what we worshiped, what we valued, what we found significance in, what we were trying to live for. But instead of running to God, I needed to shut out my conscience. My conscience got acting on me. It began to testify against me. Uh, and, and by the way, if you're in here and you're on your journey with the Lord Jesus Christ, be careful because if you start reading the Bible with some of your friends who are Christians, your conscience is going to act up. And instead of running to God, I ran from God. I ran from these Christian friends. And one night, I got cornered. Uh, Corey saw me in the dormitory and he said, stop right there. Let, let me come talk to you. And, and he comes over and he says, Brett, he says, uh, uh, I want you to go to this New Year's conference with me. It's at the end of December. Why don't you come? And December 30th is my birthday, and December 31st was party night. So I thought, there's no way I'm going to some Christian retreat. (laughs) No way. So I said, I'm so sorry, Corey, I can't pay for it. And Corey said, what if I paid for for you? So I said, Corey, I got to go visit my grandma. (laughs) That's all I had. That's all I had. And I walked away feeling like my, my heart was in my stomach. I felt so bad, I just lied to the campus minister. It was as if I just lied to Jesus. And I had. I had been trying to lie to Jesus. We're fine, it's okay. I feel like this relationship's going well. Hear this, God did not send his only begotten son. Raise him from the dead, and Jesus did not send his spirit to live inside of you, Christian, so that you could have a long-distance relationship. He did that so that the gap could be closed, so that you could have a deep, evergreen communion with the Father. He wanted you to have a relationship. He wants you. You for who you are. You with all your faults. You with all your failures. You with all your guilt. You with all your shame. He wants you but he won't leave you as you are. It's a sincere heart with full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean with the blood of Christ. This is to set you apart for his service. And it's not just 
a clear conscience that he gives us, but bodies washed with pure water. This, no doubt, is a picture of baptism, uh, but it's also a deeper meaning is what does that baptism symbolize? It symbolizes the spiritual renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so when we say live a life of worship marked by faith, what we're saying is, uh, is live a life of worship marked by faith is to have a true and sincere heart, to be fully assured of the promises of God, to have a clear conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. But second, be under full living. is not just to live a life of worship marked by faith. It is to live a life of truth marked by hope. Look right there with me in verse 23. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is what, church? He is faithful. And the, the, what is the mandate here? The mandate is for us to hold fast. If you look at that word confession for my Greek scholars in here, I know there's a few of you out there uh, who have been studying Greek. Uh, the word confession means homologia. Uh, that word means this. It means a public declaration of a doctrinal belief. That's the combination of what that word is there. It's not confession something that I do privately. I confess my sins to the Lord. No, this is a public declaration of what you believe about Jesus. Catch the facets of that. It's public and it's about Jesus. Now, this is the exact opposite of what the culture wants you to do. They would like for you very much to say, if you're going to have faith in Jesus and you're going to believe in something as exclusive and narrow-minded as that, would you please keep it to yourself? But Jesus is the only way to have life. He's the only way to have hope. It's the only way to have true security. And so we don't take our lampstand, dear church, and put it under the table. No, it is a personal confession for you, but it is not private. It's a public confession. The Lord wants to use you, church, in this time. And I'm not talking about bashing people over the head. Okay, there is a rude, impatient, ungentle way to share your confession. We do it thoughtfully, with patience. We have reason, uh, and we want to share the reason for why we believe in Jesus. And we do it patiently with people, knowing, not knowing who the Lord might call to himself, but we don't hide it. So, students, when you're sitting across the table and and your friends are saying, wait a minute, are you a Christian? Because they're starting to see and hear some of the values come out. You should simply, humbly say yes. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. My allegiance is to him alone. And so the idea here is for us to have a public and doctrinal confession. What is hope? Hope is based on the promises of God and it's anticipating those promises. Uh, we just did this with Christmas. Uh, when you celebrate the Advent season, if you like, you're celebrating the second coming of Christ. What you're saying is not only do we believe the promises of God and our faith is in those promises, but we anticipate their fulfillment. 
I'm excited because God is going to bring it to pass. So he's saying, hold fast your confession. Hold fast your hope. What does it mean to hold fast? It means to embrace the truths of God no matter the cost. It means to trust the ways of the gospel no matter the suffering. The mandate is to hold fast your hope. And what's the manner in which we are to do this? Without wavering. You can almost hear Elijah saying to the people in 1 Kings chapter 18, how long will you go on limping between two opinions? Oftentimes in our Christian life, we have one foot on Christ and one foot on what we find to be some type of security of the world. Now, perhaps you're sitting there right now and you're saying, dang right they do. You're thinking of someone else that is sitting here right now. (laughs) Don't be among the crowd that says, dear God, I'm glad I'm not like fill in the blank. Consider this for a second. The apostle Peter had his shadow healing people at one point. (laughs) He preached with living springs of water coming out of his mouth in the book of Acts. He had incredible power by the power of the Spirit working through him. Yet we find him in Galatians 2 doing what? Shrinking back. If he's susceptible to such a thing, why would you and I not be susceptible to it? How, Christian, how are we to remain? Look at the next part of the verse. It's not just the mandate. It's not just the manner, but it's also the motive what he says for he who promised is faithful the Lord Jesus is faithful it's an interesting statement by a theologian named Gerhardus Voss he says this the Christian's center of gravity should be in eternity here's what that means for us as it relates to hope I'm anticipating what is to come That means I don't have to get an inheritance because I already have one. I'm not saying be irresponsible with money. That means I don't have to search for significance because I have it in Christ. That means the day of full pleasure is coming. That means my heartache, my brokenness, and my tears. I feel like something's broken me, Pastor I've lost my spouse of decades and decades and decades. And God mercifully bottles up those tears for now. And those prayers for their body to be healed that was not healed. Well, one day at the resurrection, all things will be made. And he will wipe away every tear from your eye. And the hurt and the pain will be no more. If our hope is in eternity, brothers and sisters, that's the center of our gravity, then what we face now is light and momentary affliction. Preparing for us the weight of glory when all things that he has promised 
comes to roost. Well, it's not just, I don't know why my voice cracked there. It's not just living a life of worship, right, that's marked by faith. It's not just living a life of hope or living a life of truth marked by hope, but it's living a life in loving community, living a life in really covenant community marked by love, living a life in covenant community marked by love. Look at what it says in verse 24, the last and third exhortation. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Notice with me, friends, the day drawing near is what puts urgency in our bones for us to live a life of worship marked by faith, for us to live a life of truth uh, marked by hope, for us to live in covenant community marked by love. And, and we notice here this idea, he says, consider. It means to in, be intentionally thinking about your neighbor. When Adam and Eve, and I alluded to this earlier, gets pushed out of the garden and their children begin to make war with one another, God comes into the garden, or he comes into, excuse me, uh, comes to Cain. This is in Genesis 4. And he asks Cain this question. He says, uh, Cain, where is your brother? And Cain says to him this devilish statement. He says, am I my brother's keeper? Why would you ask me that? The Lord Jesus, when he goes to the cross for his bride and they draw the spear out of his side, like Adam, Eve coming out of the side, from Jesus' side comes the church. And the children of the church, those adopted and redeemed, reflect the love of Christ for one another. We love because he first loved us. And so when Jesus is getting ready to ascend or go to the crucifixion and then ascend into the heavens, he says this to his disciples, they will know you by the way that you love one another. One of the graces that Christ gives us to help us remain is to stir up and uh, encourage one another along the way. Now, while it's a provocative statement, I think it's one that we should consider. It's by an apologist named Francis Schaeffer. He said this. He says, God gives the lost world permission to ignore the church if they're unwilling to love one another. It echoes the refrain of the Lord Jesus, they will know you by the way that you love one another. Now, I'm not talking love as sentiment. I'm talking about rock-solid, robust commitment. The same type of commitment that reflects the Lord Jesus' commitment for his church, who was willing to give up his life. Now, this is important for us. What that means, it, it means for us to consider how to stir up. That idea, stir up there, what it means is to provoke. This is a, a, to provoke one another in the best sense, to love and good works. We want to be provoking each other to continue on in Christ. Now, this is not an opportunity for judgmental busybodies to say, 
better get yourself going. (laughs) That's not what this is. This is an opportunity to reflect the nurture and love of Christ, but also the passion of Christ to say, follow me. We are following him together. Let's go. So we stir up one another and we refuse to neglect to meet together. He says uh, in, in our passage here, he says uh, in verse 25, uh, it says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. And so we want to fight that. You know, some of the hardest things to do in the Christian life is just to show up, isn't it? Uh, particularly, let me speak real fast to the men. Our wives are usually more sensitive to the work of God and what our needs are, and they have a tendency to show up to things, particularly spiritual things, more often than than us. It's just the reality. Usually, if we throw a prayer meeting in the church, the women are the the first ones to want to be a part of it, and the men are still trying to work it out in their own strength. Then they learn, and they usually come and pray. It's hard to show up. But when you show up, God uses you in the life of other people, and he uses the other people in your life. I had a picture of this. It was my first summer project with Campus Outreach, and I was with uh, um, a a, a guy that I was discipling at the time, and I said to him, hey, everybody on the beach, you just look out on the beach. You decide who we're going to go share with today. Uh, And He's looking around and he looks over here in the water, and this was in Panama City, and he sees a guy chugging a beer and his friends circling around him saying, go, 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 go. And the guy takes the beer and he smashes it on his head and he throws the beer can up in the air and he goes, ah. My disciple turns to me and says, him. (laughs) No, you want to go share with him. So we wade out in the water and I kind of make my way over and this is gonna be really awkward. And I strike up the conversation with this guy And he looks over at me and he says, I know what you're doing. I said, oh no. Someone else has already been with him to share and now he's really intoxicated. He's about to take me out, Ben. That's what I thought. (laughs) So he says, I know what you're doing. I said, what do you mean? He says, you're a part of a campus ministry. I said, sure am. (laughs) I'm here on behalf of Jesus and would like to share with you. He said, I used to be part of campus outreach. I said, really? He said, yeah, it was a couple years ago. I said, well, man, tell me, how are you doing? He said, I'm still walking with the Lord. It's just been a really tough two years. I said, what happened, man? He said, I I, I graduated college and I started working and my job required me to work on Sundays, which is not always wrong to work on Sundays, but he could never gather with the people of God and making a priority to be in a small group was just not on his radar. And before you know it, uh, spending six, seven days in the week, of the week in the word turned into three and four and then down, dwindled down to one. And he said, I, I just feel like I'm spiritually malnourished. And I encouraged him, man, just show up. Like, even if you don't feel like it, even when you feel guilty, even when you feel like I'm not sure I'm gonna get anything, Show up and see. 
It may not come from the sermon. It may come from a conversation uh, out in the corridors. It may come on the, uh, from a drive on the way to the church or the way home. You never know what God's going to do, but trust that he wants to speak to you, that he wants to encourage you, that he wants to transform you. Show up, brothers and sisters. And know this, that he's called us not just to stir up, but to give courage to one another. He says, encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is a hearkening back, if you like, to Hebrews 3.13, where he says, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Sin is crouching at the door where you can't personally see it but it's really easy perhaps for your neighbor to see it in your life. And when we have brothers and sisters around us that really know us, they can truly give us courage. I'm not talking about those that are just trying to fix you, but those that are willing to face you because they love you and bring you into the scriptures together. Pray before you come to church. God, would you give me a word of encouragement for somebody in the church? God, would you give me a word to stir up someone, to provoke them to love and good deeds? And pray that God would give you the courage to receive that word from somebody else. This is the dynamic that we are to have in the local church, brothers and sisters. The dynamic of encouraging one another to love and good deeds, to encouraging one another to serve, to encouraging one another to have the courage to serve meals this week to the homeless, uh, to, to go with this dear a young girl who's going to, who wants to go to get an abortion, to be able to talk with her and to minister to her, uh, to encourage one another on in the mission of holding up the confession. This is the blessing that we get to have to encourage one another. And all the more, it's not to go less, it's actually to get ramped up all the more for us, dear church. This is how we remain. Because of what Christ has done, and because of what Christ is doing, we live a life of worship that is marked by faith. We live a life of truth that is marked by hope. And we live a life in loving covenant community that's marked by love. We remain when we encourage and stimulate one another to remember Christ. Some years ago, I had a good friend of mine who was a layman but was uh, sharing the gospel on the campus at Arkansas State. And Ben was very gifted, and uh, there was a, a young man that showed up at the campus, we just nicknamed him Serge. And Serge was from France. And so Ben said, I really wanna share the gospel with this guy, so Ben, in like a month and a half, learned enough French to share the gospel with this guy. It was incredible. And sure enough, Serge uh, comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ. I was so jealous of Ben. I want to be like Ben. <laughs> and uh, he shares uh, with Serge, and Serge comes to Christ. And after Serge's first semester as an international student, Serge moves off campus to live with Ben. Ben wanted to do life-on-life -life discipleship. It was really encouraging to see it. Ben had a one-bedroom apartment. And he said, Serge, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to come, and I'm going to sleep on my couch, and you can sleep in my bed in the bedroom. And Serge agreed to that, and they were doing life, and everything was going well. Uh, and 
one day, Ben came home for, lunch, for a lunch break, and he was just so exhausted. He was walking through the bedroom. He just fell asleep on the bed. And Serge came home on his little lunch break from school, and he found Ben laying in the bed. And he was furious with Ben. He, said, he, he just let Ben have it. And Ben humbly got up out of the bed that he owned, and he looked over at Serge, and he said, hey, man, I'm sorry. I won't, I won't let that happen again. Ben was telling me this story, and I said, you go back there right now, tell him to pack his bags and kick him out. <laughs> and Ben looked at me, and I'll never forget what he said. He leaned in, and he said, you know, Brad, I've invested way too much into seeing this young man mature in Jesus Christ to let a little argument ruin our relationship. You know, if you're here today and you're wondering, I'm spoiled goods, what would God want to do with me? The Bible teaches us that God is faithful. And so let 2021 be a year that you commit yourself to living a life of worship marked by faith, living a life of truth marked by hope, and living a life in covenant community marked by love. Father, we thank you so much for these moments that we get to have together. We know, Lord, that it is by your mercy and grace alone that we would get anything from your word. So by the power of your spirit, Lord, I pray that you would move on your word now. Move in our hearts. Transform us into the image of Christ that we may know you, the one true God. That we may worship you sincerely. That we may cling to your promises as our only hope. And that we may love one another in the process. We offer these prayers up now in Jesus' mighty, mighty name. And all of God's people said, amen.